It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 130, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today, Chad Wasserman, owns and operates Chad's Organics in Hilo, Hawaii, on the west side of Hawaii's Big Island. After farming up to an acre outdoors, Chad recently moved its entire farm indoors, focusing on 5,000 square feet of production under plastic to provide himself with a living from the herbs and vegetables that he markets to stores, restaurants, and a very small CSA. With over 80 inches of rain each year and no frost or even cool weather to kill off or slow down pests and diseases, Hawaii can be a challenging place to grow vegetable crops. And add to that the cost of bringing fertility inputs over 2,500 miles from the mainland, and you've created a situation that could try the best of farmers. Chad discusses what he's done to ensure that his farming operation succeeds in the face of these challenges. We get into how Chad has developed a market for his products since he started his farm in 2010, dig into how he's changed his production in response to business growth, market development, and weather, and discuss how he's developed a worm-based composting system that brings him 50 to 60 pounds of compost each week with a minimum of effort and off-farm inputs. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by CoolBot by Store It Cold. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit. Save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems at storeitcold.com. Chad Wasserman, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's an absolute pleasure to to be on your show. I've always listened to it and it's just an amazing, uh, uh, honorable opportunity to be on with the show with you. Thank you so much for joining us. So I'd like to start off like we usually do with having you tell us about Chad's Organics there in Hilo, Hawaii. You know, where where is Hilo? How much are you growing? What kinds of things are you farming? And, and how are you selling it? Sure. Well, we're um, on the big island of Hawaii uh, on the wet side in Hilo. And it's the uh, only city of significance. Most people think of Honolulu, which is on Oahu, and they have about a million people. The big island, you could take all the other islands and multiply it by two and a half times, and that would give you the size of the big island. And uh, yeah, we only have a population of 140,000, so it's not very population dense, and which I, I particularly like myself. Um, so I... Have we have a four and a half acre property, uh, actually kind of on the upper slopes of Hilo, and um, we're at about 1,200 feet elevation, and uh, it's a unique climate because um, as you go up the volcano, it cools off, you know, quite a bit, and also it can be more moisture. But um, the Big Island has 12 of the world's 14 climate zones. And um, so the topography is quite diverse. Um, my farm is on a fairly, fairly flat piece. It's got some slope to it. Um, I actually only have an acre, or actually even less than that. It's about a three-quarter acre that has been farmed. And now I've actually moved my entire operation indoors into 
uh, four high tunnels. Two of they're they're two structures, but they're gutter connected to make two into one buildings. And so I have five thousand square feet of um, indoor space in these high tunnels that I my current operation is all of its production is doing now. I've actually converted my outdoor fields into cover crops now. And I, I'm actually at a point now where I, I, you know, I may build another high tunnel someday, or I may do something else with that outside space. But I, I've just, I found enough production inside to maintain my, uh, my business that, um, well, for a whole host of reasons why I've, I've moved indoors. Is your farm business a part-time venture for you or is it a full-time operation? It's becoming full-time. Um, my wife, we have three children and they're, they've, they're all small. They're starting to grow up now, but, um, I was the main stay at home parent and, uh, that's kind of how I got into farming actually, believe it or not, because, um, I, I like gardening and, you know, I would kind of share vegetables with friends and, um, they liked them enough that they said, you know, Hey, we'll, we'll buy these from you. If, if, if you can supply us at, you know, weekly. And, um, I started out selling to, uh, basically we have a, a, like a mom's group that we would get together weekly and there would be a, a weekly email of where we'd meet up. And so I would send out an email saying, Hey, I've got, you know, carrots and broccoli and, or whatever I would have available. I can bring it to the, um, to the mom's group. And, um, started out real small and then I started a CSA and, um, moved on to selling to a restaurant and now I actually sell mainly to health food stores. Um, and it's still, I'm still the stay at home parent, but I've managed to make it into a, a full-time business, but, uh, you know, just through having some additional childcare, um, but it's it's been a challenge to manage both because not only with our farm, but also managing, you know, the acreage in Hawaii with nonstop growing and mowing the lawn and maintaining everything. It's 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 a challenge. But I, I guess the way I would say it is my business, I'm only putting in about maybe 30 hours a week into and the rest goes to maintaining my my property. Um, and some weeks I even work less just cause I don't have the time or I decide I, uh, you know, we have other family obligations. Uh, I just went to the mainland. So I like to keep a balance between life, other things outside of farming and, um, and the farm itself. Um, so I'm actually, in a sense, I'm actually working a little bit less than I used to because, um, I've, I've, I think, I feel like I've reached a maturity point where I, you know, all the beds are formed. Um, I've moved into a no-till system for two years now and, uh, you know, kind of matured my the my market, I think, with my customers. And, um, yeah, I like where I'm at because it's, um, I feel like when I'm working, it's, I'm, I'm making money. You know, I, I'm not, you know, kind of rolling the dice to see hopefully if it works out. So, um, you know, I've kind of focused and specialized into the crops that I grow. Now, with having moved indoors, uh, essentially, with that 5,000 yes. square foot of space, why did you choose to do that? You said there were a lot of reasons, but what were the primary reasons behind that? 
Well, I have um, my first high tunnel uh, was in a uh, USDA equip uh, grant uh, that I was I was luckily to to get through the USDA and they, they paid a, a fair amount of the cost and the additional I made up. And I noticed that my my yield, the quality uh, was just so much better than what I could do on the outside. And not only that, one big um, limitation of farming in Hawaii, or especially in the windward side, is we can have some really intense rain. I mean, we can get, um, we aver- Hilo averages about 120 inches a year on a good year. Uh, I would say at minimum about 80 a year. And we are up slope, so we get even more. Um, and, you know, it's it's challenging when you get that much rain to maintain quality. And not only that, I guess the comfortability of working indoors is just so much more pleasant. Um, I never have to worry about the weather. Um, you know, when it comes to weed management and crop turnover and pests um and actually probably pests would probably be maybe the first thing to talk about because um being that in the tropics we have just immense you know pest pressure because there's no winter kill and you know we're humid we have just every pest you can imagine and we also have um a health risk with uh slugs we they carry a rat lung uh parasite that can be a problem if you eat raw produce and um i for all those reasons i decided to just go purely indoors and i've actually sealed my greenhouse off to the outdoors and i've literally have taken um composite wood and i buried in the soil and connected that to the to insect screening that I used outdoor trim, stainless steel screws. So nothing's getting in unless it can, it's so, you know, like mites or something might be able to get in, but it's, you know, I've basically drastically increased my pest re, uh, prevention moving indoors. You know, it just, it just took away so many headaches. I would think that farming indoors in Hawaii, it would just be hot, 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 hot. You know, I, that's what a lot of people think. And it's, it all is, it all, it depends on your design on your greenhouse or high tunnel. Um, I went with the really high walls. So my first tunnel is six feet high and there's the, the sides are just insect screening. So you get really good airflow through that insect screening and my second high tunnel, I actually made even uh, higher. I mean, the, the centers go up to 16 feet and um, I actually raised up the columns with slips and um, the higher you make the structure, the cooler it's going to be because that airflow is going to be constantly moving. And my, poly covering on my new uh, structure is a glacial, I think they call it glacial ice or something. So it actually blocks some of the more damaging UVs and it, it actually is cooler inside than the outside. It's, it's really, 
it's really good technology to use. Um, so I guess in the combination of my locality and my greenhouse design, um, haven't had a problem with, with heat so much. Um, and I'm even growing you know, like spinach and, you know, Salanova lettuce on the inside. Now, in the sun, these warmer months, I am starting to experiment with um, using some shade cloth inside the high tunnel using, you know, kind of like those low hoops, you know, bending EMT, you know, similar to what people might do on the outside, having your, your low tunnels with Remay, except I'm using shade cloth on the inside to get those temperatures down. Um, and I've been really happy with the, the result of that, that using the, that shade cloth in these hotter months for that purpose. Now, what kind of crops are you specializing in? Cause I imagine that having shifted from outdoors to indoors, you've probably changed your crop mix quite a bit. A lot, a lot. So I used to have a much bigger CSA where they, you know, I mean, I say big CSA, but, you know, 25, 30 members, you know, wasn't that big. But um, now I'm down to just 15 members, down to three. And it's a much smaller package that I'm offering now with more limited selections. Um, and so I, I used to try to do a lot more stuff. And, it, you know, I don't miss those days, honestly. You know, you're trying to grow so many different crops and they all have their ins and outs. And, um, you know, you have to buy so much different seed. And, um, you know, I didn't feel like I was totally utilizing all of the yields because, you know, I, I, I was selling it to the CSA, but yet I, I didn't have another outlet at that time to sell to the stores. I, I was selling to a restaurant, so I had that to some extent. But um, I started to have a lot of success with the health food stores here. And I started to specialize about two years ago when I decided to start bringing stuff indoors. And um, I mean, actually, it's been within the last year that I moved 100% indoors. Um, so as far as crops I grow, I'm growing, um, I grow a lot of basil, a lot of fresh basil. That's becoming one of my most profitable crops. I Salanova lettuce is probably my number two crop. And sometimes I sell more of that than basil, along with the salad greens to make a mix. So I'll grow tatsoi, uh, purple mizuna. Um, and let's see, I grow spinach, uh, cherry tomatoes. And I do like a petite baby kale as well indoors. Um I was pretty big into cucumbers. I've cut back a bit, but I may get back into that a little bit more. But I've royal really kind of cut it down to those those you know four or five crops to I, I simplify my life, and I've I've just found them a lot more profitable when I compare the the amount of input and labor versus my return. I used to grow a lot of carrots and there's great demand for carrots. I could sell every single carrot, but it required a lot more space and it was a lot more work to grow them and process them and wash them. And, um, you know, I, and I compared like the amount of space that I needed for carrots and the amount of labor versus like basil. And I mean, basil just blew it away in terms of profitability. So, um, you know, I've really kind of 
specialize to make my life easier. And, um, you know, I guess when you find your niche and you find what customers want and you kind of develop your customer base and, you know, the de- demand's been good for those products. And I, the turnover time is quick. Um, so for all those reasons, I've, I've been pretty happy with my crop selection. I mean, you know, I used to grow more like zucchini and corn and just some more outdoor crops, but a lot of it, I, I eliminated a lot of that stuff just more just to do with my schedule. I, like I said, I'm, I'm not working full time at it. Um, you know, on the rare week I might, but you know, if I'm, I need to utilize my time to its maximum efficiency and profitability. And I've found the crops that I mentioned to be the, the winners that, you know, maybe I can make money off of squash or carrots and that kind of thing, but I can't fit it in. I, it doesn't measure up to those other four or five crops that I'm growing indoors. You know, I'm, you know, just when you analyze your return and the cost of input, uh, they, you know, just hands down, um, it just makes sense for me to grow those other varied crops, um, you know, on the, on the outside or inside. So been really happy with that. As you've shifted away from the CSA, both shrinking it and eliminating some crops from that, that crop mix, where have you found a market for your produce? Well, there's a great um, health food store chain here called Island Naturals. And um, they have three stores on the island. I live about eight miles away from their down, their Hilo store. And um, that's kind of their, their flagship store. And I, I, they sell the most of my product, but they do have two other stores. And they have this great, uh, service they offer farmers that if you have products that the other produce managers want, they'll deliver it for you on certain days. So, you know, I have my schedule set up based upon those delivery days. So for like, for example, for uh, Kona, um, you know, I just dropped off a big basil order because they're going to deliver it tomorrow. And um, it's been a great partnership because, you know, I'm not delivering, I'm not driving. It takes about an hour and a half to actually to go to their store. It take me about two hours one way. Um, so, you know, I mean, not to say I wouldn't do it if I had to drive, but I sure am glad I don't have to. They save me a lot of time and, um, and money. And so there's another health food store, Abundant Life, that they sell. <clears throat> they sell some, but not not like the uh, the Island Naturals stores have been for me. So they have they're a very busy store. Um, and yeah, I mean, just through those stores alone, I've I've really been able to increase my sales through them and to kind of phase back the CSA. And I was actually going to drop it all together, but I had some just old time hardcore customers convinced me to, to keep it going. So, um, you know, I, I decided just to, and it's, you know, I, I do want to have a little diversity and it makes, makes me a little nervous to depend on one store. So I, I am looking into 
maybe approaching some other stores selling um you know basil and salad greens but at this point I've, I've been really happy with the with the um with the amount of business i'm getting from them and when you talk about dropping off a big order in that situation what what does a big order look like on your farm uh, i'll drop off like a 200 hundred dollar order of basil um i sell them in clamshells like a a compostable clamshell and they are they're about a five ounce package of fresh really beautiful large leaf basil and i'm starting to do a smaller one just to offer customers who may not want such a big portion size and so that yeah that'll be like um 30 uh large containers along with uh um 20 smalls so um okay you know, and I, I kind of make my day through scheduling it through which store, which, you know, the Hilo store I can drop off whenever I want to. The other stores, I kind of have to align it with their delivery days. And, um, you know, and then I just match that with my schedule. And like I said, I'm the stay at home dad. So I'm I'm often picking up my kids with my orders in the back of my minivan <laughs> and I'm taking them with me to drop off the orders after school and then we're coming home and, you know, and then I'm doing the whole stay at home dad thing. And, um, you know, I don't, honestly, I don't know what other job I could do where I could do that. Or I'd, I'd have to hire childcare to pick up my kids and take them to their activities and do all the things that you have to do as a parent. Now, are you the only person working on your farm? I am. My wife has, she's, she is not interested and she's, she works a, a nurse at the uh, hospital here. And uh, I've had a couple people kind of, you know, intern, but, um, honestly, Chris, I, I like working for myself. I don't really enjoy managing people. I, I used to be a manager at a retail, uh, at an office max store and it wasn't, didn't really love it. And, um, I guess at some point I may have to hire somebody, but, um, I've, it's somehow I've made, I've made it work, uh, working part-time and just making things efficient through tools or equipment or, you know, just like we were talking about before picking the products that, you know, that are the most profitable that I, I feel like I don't have to hire people, um, at this point. And, you know, it gets, you know, it gets more complicated because you got to get a workers comp. Um, you have to train these people. Um, and at this point I, I'm just not ready to, I, I probably could, I probably could afford to hire somebody at least part-time, but at this point I, I just, just don't want to. <laughs> and no reason to do it. If there's not, if there's not a reason to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, some people are perplexed that I don't, but I, you know, I like working independently. I, I, it's, I like to work at my own schedule. I don't really want to have to train people and manage them and have personnel issues. And a lot of people do, uh, what's popular here is they have woofing, which I'm sure they have in the mainland where you, someone lives on your farm and then they, their labor is what pays their stay. And, um, you know, I've heard some bad stories about that. And, um, you know, then they're living on your property and that's a little more intimate, you know, with your family. And, um, you know, I've heard, you know, they may not be really that motivated to work because they're not getting paid. 
cash or a paycheck. And so I've, I've kind of steered clear of that, even though I've had, I've actually had many offers of people that want to come and work and learn. And you know what? I just haven't been able to fit that into my schedule. And I'm kind of selfish with my time. I, I want to do whatever I want to do on the particular day, you know, and I don't really want to have to work that out with an employee, honestly. What do the economics of farming in, in Hawaii look like? How, do, how does that work out? I've, I've always thought of Hawaii as being a fairly expensive place to live. And of course, I mean, some of that is because supplies are coming from the mainland. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about, about what those economics look like for you? Sure. It's, yeah, it's, it's true. It's, it's a very expensive place to live. Um, land here is, is pretty expensive. I mean, the big Island has the most affordable land. Um, the other islands, it's, it's really bad. I mean, if you're starting out farming, you have to either lease land. And I, I, I think you can probably find some land where you could lease it affordably um, but even that, you know, you, you're, that creates problems in itself. I, I don't know how I would farm the way I do and not live on my land because, um, one big issue here I've heard of is, is a lot of ag theft, you know, the papaya farmers, they get, you know, a lot of their produce stolen or equipment stolen. And so it's, it's nice to live on your your farm to be able to oversee everything and just, I, I wouldn't want to commute to a, my farm. That's why I want to farm because I want to live where I work and not have that hassle of having to, to drive to farm. Um, yeah. Equipment is, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, it's, we definitely pay a premium um, supplies, inputs, um, and we do have a big agricultural distributor of, you know, a fertilizer inputs, um, crop production services. And I mean, actually I would, I've compared the prices to the mainland and it's actually not too bad. We maybe pay a 10% premium for, you know, a, a bag of oyster shell or, you know, composted chicken manure, you know, whatever input you want to talk about. So that's not too bad. Um, a lot of products you might want to order online, you know, you kind of have to finagle and say, Hey, I, you know, you got free shipping, but you don't include Hawaii. So can you work a deal with me? And, um, um, you know, and the cost of building your farm is, is definitely, it's, it's, it's expensive, but, um, um, you know, the cost of produce is also higher. So, and that's what sort of interested me in the economics of it. Cause I, I was looking at all these products that were shipped in from California and Mexico. Um, and my thought was, well, how do they make the economics of that work? Because you can't put that on a, a sh I mean, some things you can put on a ship, you can put melons or whatever. But when we're talking about solid products, um, fresh products that spoil fast and basil, um, I had a feeling I could compete because if I can get the same price that the stores charge or, you know, the wholesale price that they're maybe they're paying, um, or just even through the CSA to make it seem like a good deal. Cause you know, if you buy that organically, you're going to pay a lot more. So the retail price is pretty high. So that does help to 
offset those higher costs that we have living out here. Um, and so, you know, and, and that kind of gives me a market advantage, honestly, because those that that California and Mexican organic produce, they have to air freight that. That's really, really expensive. I mean, I think sometimes they don't even make money on it. It's just because they have to offer it. And um, as I was saying, the, the local health food store here, they do support local farmers. And, you know, I've been able to get good prices from them and have a good steady demand. And so I have been able to make it work financially. Um, but it it's definitely been real challenging. I mean, I, I, I won't. You know, it's 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 taken me a while to to get to where I am, I'm at for sure. You know, just to find out what works and you know find your niche and develop the methods and techniques and um and to get get the market for that product that that you can make profitable. You know, it's it's definitely been a journey. You know, I mean, there's been times where you know you wonder, well, why am I doing this? I'm not. You know, I'm. I'm paying a lot more than I'm making. So, you know, those first few years are, they're, you know, they're, those are, those were difficult. <laughs> so when did you start farming? Well, I officially started in 2010 and um, it was very small. Like I said, it was just this small, very small CSA. And that was kind of you know, sprung up through this mom's group that we belong to with, with our kids and on our, you know, my kids were really, you know, I just had one baby, one child at that point and we've added two others. And, um, so it was very part-time at first and it kind of got a little bit easier as I could maybe afford to hire a babysitter and, you know, my wife's schedule got a little bit better. So she was able to help out with the childcare a bit. And, um, so it technically has, I'm technically, you know, on my seventh year, I guess, but it, it was far from full-time in the beginning. How long did it take you to, to develop your farm into something that was a profitable venture? Well, um, you know, at first my main goal was to, um, we didn't want to use any of my wife's income to put into the farm. So I pretty much had to you know, reinvest, you know, everything that I was earning, you know, just to give a year exactly when it, I guess it was around 2014 when, um, you know, I would say I got to a point where my income was above the investments that I was making into the farm. And so now I'm, you know, I would say really actually until 2015 where I was, you know, contributing to our household and, you know, paying for bills and childcare and the mortgage and all that. So it took a while to, you know, and I, I maybe I probably went a little bit overboard on my equipment purchases. Um, but, you know, so be it. I mean, I, I, you know, I, 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 the way I looked at it is I didn't want to hire people, but if, if a tool or a, a piece of uh, equipment would make my job faster and easier. I was going to buy it. And, um, you know, the way I did that was instead of getting, you know, some kind of loan or something like that, I just took out 0% interest credit cards 
or, you know, you get 12, 18. I even had ones that were like 21 months, you know, that you have 0%. So if I had to make a big purchase for an implement or, uh, you know, or my, you know, my greenhouses or, or whatever, I would put it on my, these 0% interest cards. And then just with knowing that I'm going to pay it all off before it's going to become prime interest. So, you know, that was a, you know, you have to have good credit to do that, but that really helped to finance a lot of stuff. So for managing your four and a half acres, what kind of equipment have you invested in? Um, well, I have a BS, BCS tractor, you know, the 853, uh, whole bunch of implements. I mean, I got, um, I've got a finishing more in that, that I don't use anymore. I've got a, I've got a tiller I don't use anymore, a power hair, R2 power harrow. Um, I've got a rotary plow and a flail mower. And now I, the thing that I use the most actually is my Carvaggi uh, shredder. Um, and then I, I, in 2015, or actually, no, it was late 2014, I bought a John Deere subcompact tractor, a 1025R, um, 24 horsepower that's got a it's got a really nice powerful uh mid-mount deck so i do a lot of my main mowing with that you know and it's it's nice it's got a backhoe on it and a, a loader and um so that's how i maintain most of the land i also have a riding you know john deere residential mower just for getting through the small spaces along the fence line and and uh you know really tight spaces and uh so, uh, but the, yeah, the, the John Deere subcompact tractor has been my main way to upkeep my property. I mean, I honestly, I don't really use it a whole heck of a lot on the farm business, you know, except for maybe moving stuff or, you know, moving some materials or compost or moving, you know, crop uh, residue or something like that around. I, you know, with the loaders, primarily what I would use it for on the farm but, um, so, you know, I have a fair amount of equipment when it comes to that. As you moved your production indoors, how did your production change? I mean, you, you say you weren't using the tractor in your fields outside in any case. So, and you've, and you've talked about making this change to doing a, a no-till version of farming. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you've got that set up? Sure. That's a kind of a <laughs> interesting story. Um, you know, I used to till, I mean, I, I had, a, like I said, I had the rotary plow I made with, with our heavy rainfall, you have to have raised beds. You can't farm without them because you need that water to drain through your walkways. So I, you know, I did do all that traditional tillage, you know, I made all my fields, I made my beds, and, um, you know, I was tilling um, and I kind of realized, you no, know, I, I, you know, I'm kind of pulverizing the soil here. And, you know, I, there was getting a lot of press about the um, the power heroes. So I did get one of those, the R2 power hero from uh, Earth Tools. And while that is a good implement and it is certainly way less tillage, um, you know, I still found that it it was harming my soil life because I would pat make a pass with it and I would see a bunch of earthworms kind of bouncing up and down and, you know, and the birds come and, you know, it was like a smorgasbord for them. Um, but I'm going off on a tangent, but I, 
We had an El Nino event in 2015 in Hawaii where we had some really extreme weather. Um, in a matter of about five months, in the summer of 2015, we at, at my elevation, we literally had 200 inches. I mean, we would have 10-inch rain days. You know, one week you might cumulatively get like 40 inches. And you can't till when you have that kind of rain. You know, your soil will literally you'll, you know, can, it'll just wash down. And so, you know, I was kind of forced to for that weather event. And, um, and I, my system kind of crashed, honestly. Um, you know, I, everything was going really well. And, and suddenly we had this just intense weather event where with the rainfall and we had some really intense, uh, heat for Hawaii. And, um, uh, you know, I noticed that like some pathogens like rootnot nematodes that I hadn't been seeing before. And um, um, so I did a I just kind of did a lot of research and, you know, just kind of went back to the to the to the board and looked into a lot of these no till systems. Um, and I I started to learn about um, the soil food web from uh, Elaine Ingham and understanding the complexity that exists in the soil and how, you know, tillage is, it really destroys your soil organisms and actually promotes the, the, um, the pathogens that you don't want in your soil. And, um, a few others, I don't know if you heard of Gabe Brown, he, uh, you know, really, um, fascinating farmer that has a no-till system for many, many years, um, you know, some other, other sources, uh, singing frogs farm, um, they were all successfully doing no-till and that was really interesting to me because, you know, just f- from a logistical p- point of view, you know, I couldn't till cause I was going to lose soil if I did. And, um, um, so I started experimenting with that and, um, you know, definitely it's, it's a learning process. It's not just going to magically happen all the, at once to make no-till work. Um, I, so I, I started doing it on the outside and on the inside and um, noticed that a lot of small, but, but improvements that were really helping, um, you know, the big improvement was just not losing soil when it rained. You know, that was a huge improvement started seeing a lot more worm life and um, less weeds, a lot less weeds actually, because I guess I wasn't turning them over to expose all those fresh weeds into the, uh, you know, to expose into the air to germinate. And, um, uh, you know, and, you know, everyone thinks you have to kind of like rotate to avoid the pests and diseases and the nutrient, uh, 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 lack of nutrients from growing the same crop. And I found actually, if you have, have, have a good healthy soil or have, have, have a good set of healthy organisms in your soil to function properly, rotation becomes irrelevant actually. Um, Cause like I said, with 5,000 square feet, that's you know that's not a lot of space really and so not having a lot of crops to grow 
you know, and I, I, you know, work mainly on transplants. I do some direct seeded stuff, but mainly transplants. And um, the no-till has really been able to make my system work with the limited space and the limited crop types because because of the soil health, because of the lack of diseases that you would probably experience in a tillage system. And um, not only that, I, you know, you just, when you till your soil, you really are just destroying that aggregate. Where I live, I actually have really good soil. I'm really blessed at it. It's a pretty heavy clay soil, but just to have soil is actually kind of rare in the Big Island. A lot of places just are pure lava rock. I, I noticed that um, the pests become, became much less of a problem with the, uh, the no-till system. You know, there's, there's just a lot of benefits, actually, if you can make a no-till system work. And like I said, it does not happen overnight. It, it takes time to transition to that. But um, I've been really, really happy with In fact, I don't. if I didn't discover no-till, I don't know I would be farming in the way that I am because, you know, the, the ability to, the fact that I don't have to drag a, a, even a walking tractor into my greenhouses is just very beneficial. You don't have the fuel. You don't have the exhaust. When you take a, and I used to take a BCS tractor into the high tunnel to, to till, but it is really like, you know, maneuvering the machinery around there. And then you, you're kind of, when you do that, you've, you've kind of actually, you've destroyed your, you know, if you have your bed, you know, kind of permanent bed system and you're tilling, you're never going to keep that nice shape. You know, it's, it's all, you're going to some, a lot of soil is going to fall off the sides and, you know, you're going to get a hard pan below and it's, it's just worked out well for me. I, you know, I do use um, landscape fabric in the system uh, just for weed management. And also the, actually I find it good for soil health because you're always keeping it covered. It's an it's an instant way to to cover up your soil with the landscape fabric, and I burn holes through it to put my lettuce through or basil through, or whatever you know cherry tomatoes, and I'm even uh, um, experimenting and finding quite success in using white ground cover with black underneath, burning holes, and it kind of melds it together. And the white is real beneficial because it keeps your soil temperatures cool. It bounces that light off. And not only that, it seems to, you know, any insects that would get in your high tunnel, they get really confused by that because that all that sunshine bouncing back up. Uh, I found that, you know, that is a good deterrence, actually, to um, any type of insect uh, issue. And when I when I turn over my crops and I pull out my you know, the, the, the lettuce stem, um, core in the bottom, um, you know, cause I, I, I like to pull it out. I don't want, you know, I like, I keep the as much root mass as I can, but I want to turn that over right away. So I'll, I'll pull out all the, you know, the, the, whatever plug was in there, the soil block plug, and I've got a perfectly fresh, clean bed, you know, no weeds. And, um, that works well in no-till system because you can, you know, if your if your soil is good, you can direct seed right into that, or you know, if you need to add amendments or 
And then, you know, you put your landscape fabric back over it to go on to the next crop. And so you can really, you know, uh, grow a lot of crops in the same space, you know, continuously. So that's how I'm able to maintain a pretty high production level in a small space. So are you doing any any bare soil production that, that falls into that no-till category? I am. I am. I I. Like I said, one. So say if I may, I I I, I turn over a lettuce bed or basil or whatever that had the landscape fabric. I've got a nice clean bed, and I do baby greens such as baby kale or tatsoi and mizuna, and I'll direct seed right into that because that's a quick crop. I I don't have a lot of weed pressure inside, but I'm sure if I kept them uncovered, stuff's going to blow in because I'm not. You know, with the tropics and, you know, we have these trade winds that are constantly blowing weed seeds all over the place. Um, I'm sure I would have more weeds if I didn't keep them covered. So I will do a direct seeded bed of baby greens. But, you know, with the brassicas, if there are any weeds, you know, they outgrow them and you won't even see them until you make your first cut. And it's pretty minimal. I mean, once in a while, I might have to, you know, just because I don't want anything to go to seed, and, you know, I might go through there and nitpick it. But, you know, I I don't do a lot of weeding. I mean, I would say I do maybe 30 minutes a week weeding. You know, I, I don't like weeding. It's That's just not something I particularly enjoy. I mean, you have to do it, but I, I find prevention is a, the best uh, method for that. I do a little bit of flame weeding too, but not very much, not very, if I'm in a, a, a situation where I, I can still flame uh, weed it, then, you know, I might go ahead and do it, but I, I don't do a lot. I don't do a lot of that. I think it's interesting. You talk about the high tunnels as, as actually keeping the weed seeds out. That's not something I would normally think of. Well, you, because I, like I've said, I've kind of barricaded them where, every there's no open access so it's i've used a it's a pretty expensive insect screening that you know it's kind of like a mesh you know like a i don't know if it's nylon or what it actually is but it's extremely resistant to tearing or anything like that i've i've had my first high tunnel is five years you know virtually no tears in it and there might be a little bit of blowing through. I'm, I'm sure some gets through, but the the screen seems to block a lot of that, um, of those weed seeds from blowing in because, you know, there's not much you can really do about wind-borne weed seed. I mean, you know, I, I'm kind of on the edge of Hilo. I'm not like right in the city, but there's enough stuff around me that I'm sure there's there's a lot of weed seeds blowing in the wind, but... Um, going in indoors has really helped that situation because you can control the moisture and, um, there just seems to be a less soil disturbance that, uh, I definitely prefer indoors versus outdoors. With that, Chad, I think we're going to stop here, take a quick break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back from Chad Wasserman of Chad's Organics in Hilo, Hawaii. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers. And with PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, log splitters, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a new water transfer pump, 
You've got the tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and across the homestead. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions for mowing and filling before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled jobs that we simply couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Plus, they're gear-driven for years of dependable service. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. The podcast is also brought to you by Store It Cold's Coolbot. Way back in 2000, which was the year I started Rock Spring Farm, the manager of the local food court complained that the lettuce from local producers lasted for days in her cooler, while the lettuce from California lasted for weeks. What's that about 2,000 miles pressure? I later found out that none of the local growers had a walk-in cooler. 17 years later, this is still the number one complaint I hear from produce buyers. You have to get your produce cold. The difference between now and then is that now there's CoolBot. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit, saving up to 83% in upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electricity bills compared to conventional cooling units. Use the code FTF at checkout to double your CoolBot warranty at no charge. Storeitcold.com. All right, and we're back with Chad Wasserman of Chad's Organics in Hilo, Hawaii. So, Chad, you know, Hawaii, right? I mean, I I went to Hawaii a couple of times when I was young, and, and uh, you know, I don't remember eating a whole lot of vegetables, and especially the kinds of things you're talking about. It seems like a very mainland crop mix. What is the market like there for organic vegetables? I mean, both in both on the buying side as well as on the production side. Is there is there a lot of market farming going on in Hawaii? There is. There is. There's a lot of small farmers. Um, there's not a lot of big organic farms. I mean, in fact, there's there's very there's really no real big organic farm. So there's a lot of small producers. There's not a lot of certified organic vegetable farms. Um, there's a lot of certified organic uh, coffee farms uh, or, um, you know, some other fruits. Because, um, you know, what, what were we well known for? You know, papayas, um, pineapple is pretty much out of business, you know, except for some local per- markets. Um, I mean, yeah, a lot of produce is imported here you know which i think is kind of a shame you know because we're we're so far away and that's what kind of motivated me to look into retailing at health food stores because a lot of it was imported you know i knew that the like i was talking about before the the cost of importing those products and having to air freight them you know i knew i could compete as long as i could get similar pricing to to what they're paying for the imported produce and um i i would say it's changed a lot from probably when you were here um you know there's definitely a local food movement a lot of people you know are really into their health there are a lot of people that have moved here they want to eat healthy they want local produce um so, you know, I think the the demand is there. Um, now, the logistics of making a business work where you can produce a, a product that's profitable, you know, is that that's definitely not easy to do. 
Um, you know, and it's, I, I mean, my island's a bit limited because our population is, is kind of small. You know, the, the other islands, I mean, like Oahu has a million people on it and they're importing a lot of their produce. And the big farms that they do have are, are certainly not organic. And they are supplying the, you know, the stores and the, the some of the restaurants, I would say, you know, if, I, I don't know what the ratio would be, but it's it's it is becoming more local but i for me i've tried to create my own brand so i make my own labels um my background was i have a bachelor of fine arts i went to art school the art studio chicago and you know i did web design for a while so i knew how to do graphics and so you know i was able to make my own color labels to get that usda you know, organic label on it, you know, so people associate that with a brand. And I found that when I put my own label on my products, that really increased sales as opposed to just having something generic or, you know, no label at all. Um, You know, I think people, and so that allowed me to, you know, add on other products with my brand. You know, I think that, creates, you know, kind of customer loyalty that you can keep strong sales going. And um, I've even developed relationships with the, you know, the produce managers and the even, you know, just employees that work in the produce department. And, you know, I see them on a regular basis and I have a really good rapport with them. And they even tell me that they recommend my products to their customers because they know, you know, it's, it's, it's a good quality as opposed to making, you know, kind of a more of a commodity product, really matter where it comes from or no name, you know, that's not the kind of farming I, I want to do because, you know, I I want it to be unique, stand out for its quality, something that people can remember when they go back to the store to go buy. So that that's worked out well for me. I mean, I've actually never done like a farmer's market, even though we have a really well-known farmer's market in Hilo. You know, I found that a lot of people are just selling the same stuff. And like, yeah, maybe you, you know, the people that go there, they might find a vendor they like or whatever, but the prices weren't that great, I found. And then you're competing with all these other people and you're spending your time sitting there at the farmer's market when I'd rather be farming myself or doing something else besides being at a farmer's market. Um so, and that was why I started the CSA because I wanted to farm. I didn't want to stand at a farmer's market or, you know, having to worry about the, the marketing aspect to it. In the beginning, the CSA worked out good for me because I could get prepaid and the logistics of them picking up was pretty easy. I mean, I could all do it all in one day or even sometimes just half a day where the CSA would be dropped off by say lunchtime and then I'm pretty much done. You know, I guess if you can find your customers that are willing to be loyal and seek your products out, you know, I think you can make it work. It's taking me a while to find that niche and develop my skills and just all the different, you know, type of skill sets that farming requires to manage your your business to make a good quality product that people want to buy. You know, I mean, there's so many nuances, you know, 
to that. I don't know. It's, I mean, I guess it's like maybe any, anywhere else, you know, as far as like, there's quite a big demand for organic, healthy produce. And, um, you know, I guess through me making my own brand, my own label that people identify with that I've gotten that customer loyalty where the stale, the sales have remained really well, you know, and sometimes certain times of the year, I, I, I can't meet the demand because there, you know, I, maybe it's because there's enough to it. Like in the winter time, it is just slamming busy. Um, it slowed off a little bit in the summer, but not much, you know, I mean, in fact, I don't even mind cause I, I want to work on other projects. Um, so it's, it's been good for me. I've seen other people struggle where they, I think they, they get excited to, to farm here. Cause you can kind of, you know, idealize what that might be like. Cause you know, we, we don't have frost. We don't have, you know, a winter, and um, but yet we have a whole other slew of issues that you might not experience on the mainland. You know, I think I, I think people get disgruntled fast because they're trying to do too much at one time and they're encountering way too many problems. And so they give up. You know, I've seen a few people do that just personally. And I've heard a lot of other stories about people trying to make a farm business here and they decide not to do it because it's just there's just too many problems that they're encountering and it's not, you know, it's not profitable and they, they do something else. Well, um, first of all, it, we, there's quite a bit of pest pressure without our winners. Um, you know, I mean, we have every insect under the sun. (laughs) I, um, you know, like for example, you know, just like growing cover crops, you know, I, if you seed your bed, you know, these birds come and they will literally eat most of your seed, uh, you know, where you, you might get 10, 15% germination because the birds have eaten the rest of it. Um, you know, I found a way to overcome that is you've got to put some kind of cover on it. So I'll put the insect screening on top of the soil. Um, that's just one example, but, um, you know, insect pressure, um, you know, disease pressure, crop failures, um, heat stress. Um, yeah, a lot of crop failure. You know, I've, I've seen I, I, there was one particular friend who he, he was kind of going at it really ambitiously. And, you know, he just had so much crop failure that it was just so he was so disgruntled by it, but he, so he just quit because he wasn't getting enough return on, on his input into the business and it, it just wasn't working. So I think maybe two people don't have a market ready. You know, they, they kind of go into it and start doing some things and maybe they sell at the farmer's market or they're trying to sell at the restaurants and you know, that, it's kind of tough to do that because, you know, you're going to be putting a lot of time into it and your return on that labor isn't going to be so great in the beginning, at least. I mean, restaurants, I, you know, there's definitely a market there. And I used to work with a big restaurant here, Hilo Bay Cafe. They worked well for me for a while because they had a, a really good chef that really pushed local products. And I, I liked work with him. But now he he moved away and then they had a new chef come in who kind of nitpicked at the prices and, 
you know, was always trying to negotiate with me to lower the price. And, you know, I just said, that's enough. You know, I, I'm, I'm getting a good price from the health food store. You know, I'm, I'm done nitpicking. You're charging 30 a plate. You know, why are you trying to downsize the price by $2 a pound or, or whatever it was? You know, finding that market is key. And I think maybe going in it to it too big to think you're going to suddenly get all this income without any problems, well, that just isn't going to happen if you don't have the experience in established market. I think one reason why I was been able to make this work is because I went into it very small and made incremental changes to gradually accommodate more demand. You know, it was never too big where I couldn't handle it or had, you know, problems where I couldn't manage that to still make an income, you know, from farming. You know, I don't know. Maybe I, you know, I just, I, I, I love doing it. So I, I just kept at it. And um, I, I don't know what to say about that. We talked earlier about the challenge of getting supplies in Hawaii. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that I would think would be the hardest would be, would be getting things like fertilizers and soil amendments because they're heavy. And, and if they aren't heavy, they're bulky. What are you doing for fertilizers and soil amendments there? Right. No, that's a really good question. And um, and that's a big challenge here because we have to pay more expensive freight charges. You know, we're 2,500 miles away from the West Coast. So, you know, I, I did it. I did do some cover cropping on the outside. And, you know, even for that, I had to repay ridiculous prices. I would pay more for the shipping than the cost of the seed often. So that was one way I, I don't rely on that anymore. Um, I, you know, I do purchase inputs, whether it be like oyster shell. Um, we do crab meal, um, azomite. Um, and I guess I'm on a smaller scale. So and. But the profitability of my products are such that I, I I can purchase those inputs and still have a positive cash flow. But one of the biggest um, improvements that I made on my farm was being able to make my own worm compost. Um, I, I got really interested in making compost when I learned about the bio, the soil biology and how much of a critical role that plays in into preventing diseases and pests and improving your fertility. And you, you can't purchase commercial compost here. Like there's no truck deliveries. There's, there's really no one making it to purchase it commercially. You know, with our rainfall, I, it was, a, you know, I can't just have an open pile, compost pile because, you know, you get a lot of leaching if you, you know, you're having rain and, um, you know, we, we also have like these fire ants here that are attracted to compost piles. So I wanted something really contained. And, um, you know, I looked into vessel composting and that was really expensive to have that kind of structure purchased here, even to without even thinking about the shipping. So I really got into learning about vermicomposting and um, I purchased a, a worm wigwam and um, used that in our in our carport in a covered structure. So I produce about 50 to 60 pounds a week of, of worm compost. That's really, really high quality worm compost. And that gets used in the, in my seed starting mix as well as um, directly into all the beds into my high tunnels. And that actually has reduced my input costs at least by 50%, you know, and I think that I'm, 
incrementally having to reduce that even more actually, or the, the input cost of buying off-farm uh, input products through using more worm compost. Because um, the advantage is, is, you know, with your traditional compost pile, you have to turn it, you, know, you have to aerate it. You know, you have to, you let it reach a certain temperature and then you turn it and then you have to wait a certain amount of days. Well, the beauty of worm compost is the worms are doing all that turning and aeration for you. And so they become little willing workers on your farm and they're always reproducing. You know, it's amazing. I'm amazed when I do go through my worm compost and I sift it through and there's, geez, there's like all these baby worms and there's cocoons and, um, uh, you know, they're really productive. And so um, through kind of trial and error, I've developed a, a system where, you know, I do use coconut core, so I do buy that, but that is relatively inexpensive compared to what it would cost for me to buy a bag of worm compost. I mean, I, I would have to do the math for you, but I go through a bale of coconut core, you know, maybe every other week or something like that. And um, then I take all my farm waste, kitchen waste, but mainly farm waste from, you know, called leaves and stems and, you know, crop residue. And what I do actually is I shred that in a BCS Carvaggi shredder and on a regular basis, say, I guess maybe five times a week, I put a small layer of that shredded fresh vegetable waste along with the coconut core, you know, and you, I keep on layering that and the worm population has grown where, you know, they're, they've eaten through everything within a day or two. You know, it's, it's, it is astonishing how rapidly, you know, they will consume the organic matter if it's prepared properly. And, um, I'm actually, I'm even changing the system now where I'm, I'm going to pre thermal compost some of that material and then feed it to the worms because you do get a bit of a thermal heat effect if you apply enough of that and you don't want to overdo that. You can cause a lot of problems so in small amounts it's okay but i'm i'm actually starting experimenting where you you go through a thermal heat process and once it's cooled down then you feed that material to the worms and then they process it all of that you know into their their worm compost or worm poop and um so you know through a kind of like a uh turning you know, um, tumbler compost that I'm constructing on my farm with, you know, using wood posts and basically just garbage bins on, um, using a metal pipe to turn it. So, but you know, that's a new thing I've, so, and I've had pretty good success just feeding it this raw vegetable material with the coconut core. And, you know, at the bottom, it has a winch that you turn and, you collect all your material at the bottom and it is just super rich. The just deepest, darkest smells like the forest floor and all the microbes, those that worm compost has is rich, diverse. And the stuff you can buy doesn't have that because they're using like dairy manure and 
one feed source. That's my, the only, you know, for my seed starting mix, I use the, the worm compost and, uh, you know, like just a sunshine mix number three. And, um, you know, maybe like at a 15% ratio of worm compost to the uh, potting soil. And I do at least a little bit of like the powdered azomite just to get a kind of a mineral spectrum. Um, make sure I've got all my minerals available. And um, my, my transplants are just, you know, uber, uber healthy, uh, especially when I compare it to what before I had the worm compost. Um, you know, I mean, I the, the lettuce, lettuce starts I have are just, you know, they are just bulletproof. So when I go to transplant, it's a quick turnover because I've got this beautiful, healthy transplant from my worm compost that allows my system to have a fast turnaround and a very healthy plants. And, you know, the healthier you can make your, your plants, it, it just makes your job easier. Cause you know, when you're processing and you're, you know, kind of going through your leaves and I'm really, I'm a perfectionist. So if I see one little munch of a mite or something or whatever on a leaf, you know, I discard it cause I don't, want customers to they're paying a premium so i won't want that to be in their mix but i've noticed with the worm compost i call so much less and that makes your job easier when you're processing you know and washing and sorting your vegetables and you know packing you know when you don't have much insect damage it just makes it easy you know, and it, it makes it more profitable because you're, you know, you're pulling less product and you're selling more. You know, you have this healthier product that has very little or no insect damage on it, no disease. And, um, you know, I think the customers notice that. And that's why I've been able to establish a good market and demand is because my products are, you know, they're they're tasty. There's... No, there's not the insect damage and there's a, a certain uh, level of quality that I think lacks in the imported products or my competition. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to brag or anything, but I, I feel like the key to that success has been the no-till system, you know, and the worm castings. Those two things have really um, powered or provided my system with a uber healthy, you know, visually beautiful product that is going to outsell the, either the imported product or, you know, the, the local competition. Um, I mean, I've had times where the, the produce manager tells me they, they had some of their imported solid mix go bad because no one was buying it next to mine, <laughs> you know, and, you know, I think that goes a lot into taking that attention to detail and having the a healthy product that doesn't have any insect or, you know, it has a, a good flavor to it. So, you know, customers know that when they and, and taste it when they when they buy those products. Absolutely. So I'm I'm really interested in the system that you're using for producing the worm compost. You you talked about the feedstocks that you're using, the the farm wastes and shredding those, and then using the the coconut core uh, along with that. But you you mentioned this tool, the worm wigwam, and 
I'm familiar with these because I happen to have one on my farm during the last few years that I was farming and, and I, I failed with the worm wigwam, but I'd, I'd like it if you could tell us like, what is a worm wigwam and what does it look like and how does it work and why that over another system for vermicomposting? It's a flow through worm composting system um, as opposed to a kind of a closed bin system. Um, and so the idea is that you're adding your feedstock to the top and the worms are always kind of rising to the top to feed on that new material. And over time, the finished castings are going to go to the bottom. And uh, the nice feature of the worm wigwam is it has a chamber on the bottom that is accessible just through a panel that you take off. And that's where your finished worm castings are going to end up. And um, it's got a winch with a, you know, just a handle that you turn and it, it literally just shaves off the finished worm compost at the bottom. And uh, it's a really well-designed unit. Um, you know, I mean, they have more expensive units that you can get where they have like a electrical winch that'll shave all the, the, the uh, worm castings for you. They're a lot more expensive. They take up a lot more space. And um, I like these worm wigwams because, you know, I, I only have one now, but I actually am, I'm going to be buying a new one shortly and maybe even two. And um, they really, I mean, I'm getting a lot of worm castings, like I said, about 50 to 60 pounds per week. You do need to really know the ins and outs of worm composting. You know, there's, there's certain things that you don't want to feed them. When you establish your worm population in the beginning, you know, unless you can buy enough worms and, you know, we have the limitation in Hawaii, we can't import worms from the mainland. So we have to, you know, either buy them from someone, you know, or you got to get your own worms. And that's exactly what I did as I, in the beginning, I just went around into, you know, a pile of cut grass or something rotting or, or actually one of the best things was is in bananas when they rot after you know you've cut your bananas down in the in the core there's going to be a whole bunch of worms on the inside because all that material on the inside is rotting and it's it's moist it's the perfect environment for them so i would go and open these cores of um cut banana um I guess the the stalk, the main you know stem of the plant, and it would just be there was just pounds of of worms inside. So I went around and collected as as much as I could. You know, even palms. If you go underneath um like a dead palm frond, you'll find underneath as that rots, there's a whole bunch of worms inside there. That I don't. It's amazing they can do this. They somehow climb up the palm tree. And they live in there. And so you could open them up and then, you know, I'd find a bunch of worms in there. And so I went around and collected as many worms as I could, you know, for maybe like a month or two and kept on adding them to my worm wigwam. And um, you one big um, 
thing to be careful of is you never want to overfeed them too much in the beginning. And a lot of people make that mistake because if it overheats, um, they'll leave. They're, they're not, they're, they'll let you know that this isn't working out for them because if you put too much material in there and there's too much thermal heat, they, they, they just can't breathe. So they will exit your system. So you kind of have to start, start out kind of slow and then incrementally add more food feedstock as they're able to process that material. And, you know, even in the instructions, it says, it, you know, it's going to take about five months before you can start harvesting your your worm castings from the worm wigwam because you have to build those layers up and um, and the population has to build where you've got it near the top of the unit. And so at the bottom, you know, if you've done it right, you can start harvesting your finished castings on the bottom but um you know you got to be careful what you feed them um you don't want to feed them too much acidic items like orange peels or onions you know minimize or avoid completely you know and i find that they they like stuff shredded up because it it kind of breaks a lot of the cellular walls of vegetable matter you know, or even like eggshells or whatnot. It and it kind of blends everything up together. And the nice thing about the the shredder unit is that it, it, it's not going to make like a liquid. It just kind of shatters it into small bits, and those quickly become available for the worms to eat. But like, you wouldn't want to use a blender to make like a smoothie or something for your worms because that's too much liquid and that's going to overheat and be too anaerobic. So there's definitely some finesse to it, to learning about it. It's, I, I, it's probably more difficult than like traditional thermal compost. But if you can, once you learn how to do it and you have a good um, unit, like the worm wigwam, it becomes really easy. I mean, honestly, like I, I spend maybe 10 minutes every other day, you know, shredding and, putting on my worm wig bomb and adding some coconut core and then I'm done. You know, it's, it's really fast. So, you know, you, you have to make sure your worm population is, is sufficient to handle the feedstock that you give it. And also critically important is balancing your carbon to nitrogen ratio. So you want to make sure you can even go put more carbon than the nitrogen, uh, more browns to greens than, than you might in like a, a thermal compost because they need that aeration and that material that is going to balance out the high nitrogen, you know, green matter that you um, feed to your worm bin. So keeping the balance of the carbon to nitrogen and not overfeeding them and having a sufficient worm population is, I would say, the key to making, you know, a worm bin work. So it's you know and i have that's not the only worm bin i i actually have some garbage um bins that i've converted into a worm bin and they're actually working quite well because i i have material that i don't really want to feed to my worms or go to the 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 seed starting mix or my high tunnel and i'll use them on my fruit trees and um so i i have these alternate kind of worm bins and um 
you know, as long as you don't overdo it and you make sure there's enough carbon in it. And actually, it's interesting because they were originally like thermal compost bits and the worms just found their way in from the outside and they just traveled up there. And now if I go to and dig out to the material below, I mean, there's there's a really good worm population there. So when I do go to start a new worm wigwam, um, my idea is I'm going to sift through and pull this huge worm population out of these alternate worm bins, and I'll start my new worm bin uh, with those worms to have a sufficient population to really get that going. Because the way I look at it is I cannot make enough of this stuff. I mean, it really is just an amazing fertility tool that, you know, it just makes everything healthier. And, you know, I don't know if you've heard of Elaine Ingham and the Soil Food Web, but if you listen to some of the lectures, they will show you, you know, how to use a microscope and look at that worm compost and you can see, you know, the, the protozoa and, you know, even fungi. And uh, if you have a powerful enough microscope, bacteria and um, even some um, like fungal and bacterial feeding nematodes and all those organisms, they're going to make your soil just all the more healthier and cycle through nutrients and fend off diseases and pests. Every farm has like a whole, you know, different, I guess, you know, game changing things that improve their system to make their farm work or sustainable. But that's been a, a really big one is the, 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 the worm composting. It just, you know, it's just a way to manage your waste and produce your own compost. And the more that I can produce the, like I was saying, the the less off-farm inputs I have to buy. And so that really helps out your pocketbook when you, you know, you don't have to um, buy all these off-farm inputs. I like a saying that uh, Gabe Brown uses is that he likes to sign the the back of the check instead of the front of the check. Well, you know, I think you sh- that's the way to go. I mean, the more you can produce your own inputs and stop writing checks for these expensive inputs, you're going to make your farm financially sustainable. And um, not only that, it's just, yeah, I guess like from an ecological point of view, you know, it's it's just nice to know you're recycling your waste and making it into, you know, really the most valuable input, you know, on the farm. So, you know, because you got to control your costs. I mean, that is like, I think that's what we were talking about before, why a lot of people get disgruntled and like farming here is that, you know, and we're talking about the cost of farming in Hawaii is that is just very, uh, it's, it, you know, when you look at the, the cost of all that machinery and inputs, and the cost of land, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it turns off a lot of people, I think, because, you know, you got to make you got to be in the black somehow. <laughs> With that, Chad, we're going to turn to our lightning round right after we get a word from one more sponsor. All right. This lightning round, as well as perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast, is brought to you by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes for organic growers since 1992. Founder and owner Carl Hammer got his start as an organic vegetable grower where he learned that quality transplants really mattered and that quality transplants come from quality potting soils. Just like the donkey in their logo, Vermont Compost Company potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. 
And part of that is exactly what Chad was talking about today. You really want a compost that is rich in diversity rather than just a large quantity of somebody's waste products. Vermont Compost makes their compost from a wide array of feedstocks selected for what they bring to the compost and to the potting soil made from it rather than just taking what they can get or just using what they've got on the farm. And when good transplants can make such a huge difference in your farming system, why would you settle for anything but the best? VermontCompost.com. Hey, Chad, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Yeah, I know I thought about this already, and I don't know if this applies, but I was going to go with my my computer. Um, that's something I just absolutely cannot live without when it comes to um, to farming. You know, I don't really have another tool that I like as much um, when it comes to, um, you know, I mean, just I've learned so much from the Internet and like your podcast and a lot of other lectures and all that kind of thing. You know, I would say that the computer has been the most beneficial tool for me because I've been able to learn about, you know, farming, farming organically, about learning about soil biology and um, about all the different tools and techniques. Um, you know, I've gotten so much out of like listening to um, like J.M. Fortier's lectures about market farming, um, like the Curtis Stone and the Urban Farmer. Um, you know, so many other lectures. Uh, I think you interviewed him once, Bob Kennard, you know, learning just, I mean, really, really just totally different thinking about farming. And um, I was talking about Gabe Brown, um, um, you know, just the ability with the internet and having so much information available to you and being where I am, I'm thousands of miles away. You know, I felt like I've been able to to get almost like a college degree in, in organic farming from learning all this information, you know, for free basically. And, um, I don't know what I, I wouldn't be able to do what I do without having been exposed to all that diverse information and kind of picking and choosing from whether it be Elaniegum as a soil scientist, uh, different farms and their techniques and tools and, and trying to put all that together into a system that makes sense for your environment and, and situation, um, you know, and just learning by example and, you know, trying out a new technique and, you know, before you make a big purchase on, you know, some implement or some machine or tool, you know, just going to YouTube and seeing, you know, what other people are using it for and what their experiences are. And, um, you know, you can learn so much, you know, I mean, just your podcast, you know, listening to all these different other farmers and how they got started and how they found their markets. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think I could do without my tractors, you know, I mean, I'd, I don't know what I do about mowing the lawn, but being no till, I, I don't need a tractor. Um, you know, I could do without, you know, a lot of my equipment, I think temporarily at least, but it would be really hard to be without my computer. <laughs> I mean, not only just for the information aspect to it, but when you put all your sales into a spreadsheet, it really helps you 
analyze what your most profitable crops are so you can kind of eliminate the things that aren't profitable. And you just can't do that without a computer and and to keep all that information centralized and uh, being able to analyze that um, and reflect on, you know, what your best sales are and, you know, what your input costs are into that crop and to make it profitable. So I absolutely, I have to have my computer. I mean, I, I really, I use my computer more than I do my tractor by far. <laughs> you know, it is just, you know, it's, I, I've learned so much and it, I've, I've decided to change my system of farming based upon what I've learned from other farmers and, you know, other ways of thinking. So Chad, you know, every farmer has made mistakes as they've grown their farm. What's the mistake that you made that you've learned the most from? You know, I, I think the mistake that a lot of farmers make is trying to do way too much all in the beginning and um, getting disgruntled about it and, you know, having crop failures from trying to do way too much. And um, I think being having a CSA and, you know, you want to please your customers with having a diverse um, set of vegetables in their baskets that, you know, I think I spread myself way too thin in the beginning and um, I made it a lot hotter myself than I needed to that. I, I would think that would be my biggest mistake is just being too ambitious and trying to do, you know, in the beginning I was doing like asparagus and I was trying to do melon and all these different type of squashes and, um, you know, and I felt like I, I was having some success, you know, some things would be successful and some things wouldn't, but you know, it was really stressful just, you know, having just so much space with so many different things. And, um, you know, I think that was just really, really problematic because, you know, with the CSA, it's, it's hard to analyze the financials of each crop because everything gets thrown into a basket that, um, which is kind of one reason why I moved away from the CSA. But um, I guess I would put it that just trying to do way too much in the beginning. You know, we had egg layers, too, in the beginning. I, I nixed that because that became not very profitable and just too much work. And so I think I got a little bit burnt out from time to time by just trying to do way too many crops and offering too many things. And um you know, that hurt my financials because I was buying all this different seed and then you're putting the inputs into all these different diverse crops. And, you know, it's really hard to make the numbers work when you're you're doing too much. I mean, I, I would say that's one of the biggest mistakes I made was just being being too ambitious and trying to do too much. And what's your favorite crop to grow? My number one crop favorite to grow is definitely basil. Um, it's, it's in terms of the labor, it's really, really by far most, the most profitable crop for me. Um, I, 
you know, I love the aroma, you know, when I'm processing it. I actually don't really eat that much basil myself, but, you know, I might put some in soups or flavors, some things with it, but I don't, I'm not a big pesto person, but I, I just, I love the aroma. I love the, it's just a beautiful, luscious crop that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fresh crop that, that, you know, they, you can't really, it's hard to import basil. So I've, I've been able to establish a good market for that. Um, I mean, one problem is you get the down, basil downy mildew, but um, I've been able to find ways to avoid that. And, you know, I always cycle through and do new planting. So I constantly have a replacement up ahead. And, um, you know, with our humidity here, it, it can't be a problem, but I've, I've been able to circumvent that through healthy growing practices, the soil biology. Finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I would say keep it simple and focus on quality over quantity. You can't really focus in on quality if you're growing too many different things, or at least my experience has been that you you can't if you're growing too much too many different crops it's really hard to focus in and really develop a very high quality product and so i would say keep it simple and really kind of hyper focus in on the quality over quantity and then once you've found your your winner you know and for me that was been like the basil and the solanova lettuce and then, you know, I've been able to scale up on those crops that are winners because I've managed to develop, you know, a threshold of quality that is very marketable and profitable. So I guess that would be the number one thing is focus on, on, on quality over quantity and keep it simple. Chad, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Chris. It's been my my pleasure. Uh, if you ever come out to the Big Island, you have to come for a visit, and um, love to have you out here. And I really enjoy your show. I've learned a lot from it, and keep it going. Thank you so much. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode one hundred and thirty of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for the show at farmer to farmer by looking on the episodes page or just searching for. Wasserman. That's W-A-S-S-E-R-M-A-N. What does that mean? Find the notes for this show. I take all the links for, for tools that the guests mention, try to get a summary up there. We got links to the transcripts. So the transcripts for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walkbind farming equipment and high quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. And by Local Food Marketplace, providing an integrated, scalable solution for farms and food hubs to process customer orders, including online ordering, harvesting, packing, delivery, invoicing, and payment processing. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your email inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head over to iTunes. Leave us a review if you enjoy the show. Talk to us in the show notes. Tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. 
You can support the show by going to farmer to farmer slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmer to farmer podcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs> <laughs>